It's Muppeturgy with a very campy episode about the John Denver episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! Hey, we hope you're as glad to see us as we are to see us, among other people. I'm glad to see you all. And I'm glad you, dear listener, are here with us too. I'm David Levy, and here today with me are... Michal Richardson. Christy Bauer. And Adam Grossworth. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. We omitted something incredibly important in our discussion of of Muppets Go Hollywood, which was the chroma keyed conga line. <laughs> My new band name. You know, it, it's two things that we enjoy talking about. Uh, <laughs> chroma key and uh, awkward Muppet dancing. So... You know, in, in the spirit of a very Muppeturgy correction, we regret not talking about conga lines. <laughs> I deeply regret not talking about conga lines. But we're not actually going to talk about it here other than to note that it appears that the Muppets were chroma keyed over the people. Kind of all there is to say. Although, I'm not convinced that that's the case. But we don't need to talk about it. I would have lots to say about conga lines, only we're just here to say that we regret not talking about conga lines. So. Here is a Muppet news flash. It is a new season, so we like to do a little review and context for new listeners. Welcome, new listeners, or previous listeners who have forgotten all of this. So we will remind you that episodes of The Muppet Show were made in a pretty different order than they aired, and they aired in a different order in the U.S. and the U.K., and in the U.S. the show was syndicated, so it didn't air on the same day uh, or the same time or possibly even in the same order in different cities. Also, in the UK, the episodes were longer than they were in the US because they had fewer commercial breaks or fewer commercials in the breaks. Uh, So there's an extra sketch called the UK sketch. More about that later. So we are watching along on Disney Plus, which is using the production order, um, as did the DVDs. But no more DVDs. We're in season four. I mean, there are some things on DVD, but like no more DVD box sets. So we're, we're Disney Plus only. New York City is considered the official air date for the U.S., and I have a New York Times subscription because I live here, and I do this part of the show. So that's what we use to give you some context about what was happening in the world when the show aired. Speaking of which, since it's a new season, but we only get to look at Monday nights when we do this, uh, here's just a quick look at what else was happening on TV in 1979-1980 notable things according to me (laughs) um premiering that season on tv benson galactica 1980 which is not that notable but we did have a whole weird digression about battlestar galactica last season and how it was like a cult like a flop that became a cult hit but apparently the pilot movie was wildly successful and that was really confusing battlestar galactica did only run for one season so that's a, a bit of a clarification on that and then they had this dreadful follow-up galactica 1980 also premiering in this season heart to heart that's incredible exclamation point archie bunker's place knots landing which will run until 1993 which seems insane though i do still watch Grey's anatomy so i guess it's not that insane trapper john md facts of life uh sanford a spinoff of sanford and son which should have been called son uh if we're being <laughs> accurate or pedantic yeah well both um well, I mean, what was the son's last name? I mean, Sanford, but the point is, <laughs> you can't call it Sanford. Anyway, that's who was Son of Sanford. That. No, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. Beyond Westworld, uh, an attempt to make a TV series out of the movie, which ran for three episodes. Good job doing better than that the next time around. Um, and Buck Rogers. 
Uh, some returning shows that I don't think we've talked about before. Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy. Is Mork and Mindy also a spinoff of Happy Days, or do it I have that? That's insane. Three's Company and The Ropers. We've definitely talked about The Ropers because their first names, or at least in the British show the that British The Ropers version. is based on, their first names are George and Mildred. Yes. Uh, Soap, from which Benson uh, mentioned a moment ago, was spun off. Dallas, which ran from 1978 to 1991. Was was Not Landing a Dallas spinoff? They, uh, I always get this confused. I think so. The Jeffersons, uh, which was spun off from All in the Family, as was Archie Bunker's Place. Hawaii Five-0, Different Strokes, which uh, this must be the first season without Mrs. Garrett, because Facts of Life just started. And The Rockford Files. And then canceled this season were Starsky and Hutch, Welcome Back, Hotter, What's Happening, with two exclamation points, uh, All in the Family, a live-action Spider-Man show that ran for two seasons, apparently, and seems like it would have been my shit at this time, but I don't remember it at all. I remember it only because that also was one that had, like, a pilot movie, and when I was a little kid, that pilot movie showed up on, like, the UHF Sunday afternoon movie all the time, and I was always excited because it was Spider-Man, and then always bored because it's bad. Right. Uh, Good Times, Rhoda, and Wonder Woman, all of which we have definitely talked about before. And, of course, the Muppet movie opened on June 22nd, 1979, and is still in theaters at this moment uh, that we're about to talk about. It's kind of blowing my mind that Happy Days was still on, because I don't think of it as lasting into the 80s era. Oh, I do, just because I remember how bad early 80s Happy Days was, because that's when I was watching it. Conversely, I'm surprised that some of these shows are this early. Like, you know, obviously we, we are bridging into 1980 here, and but also like pop culture decades don't actually start on the zero. So I am really surprised to see Facts of Life and Benson and and Different Strokes already on the air for a couple seasons. Um, mostly because these are shows that I watched as a kid, though maybe in syndication. But yeah, they feel very 80s to me. So many of these shows exist in Tommy Westfall's Snow Globe. Yeah. A shocking, shockingly high number of them, dude. Yeah. Whoopee! Okay, we are actually here this week to talk about Season 4, Episode 1 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of April 24th, 1979, and it aired in New York City on September 17th, 1979. It was, in fact, the season premiere, so uh, we, are, we are in the same order for the moment. In the news... Uh, We have a couple of great Cold War stories. A married couple from the Bolshoi Ballet defected this week, and and that feels very, like, prototypical (laughs) late 70s, early 80s story. Um, I actually just watched a murder she wrote where that was the plot. (laughs) Specifically ballet dancers? Uh, Were they ballet? Yes, actually. I think they were specifically, now I can't remember, there was some, maybe it was an opera company? I think they were ballet dancers, though. They did not call them the the Bolshoi, though. (laughs) And then two East German families escape to West in homemade balloon. <laughs> Cold War was wild, you guys. I just have this image of them in their balloon singing up, up, and away, and it's very funny. Right? Would you like to ride? <laughs> uh, there's a full-page ad for uh, Musicians United for Safe Energy, Muse, concerts for a non-nuclear future uh, at Madison Square Garden. There's a, a a few of them, featuring not all at the same time, but on different nights, but some at the same time. The Doobie Brothers, Jackson Brown, Graham Nash, Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, Bruce Springsteen, Shaka Khan, and Tom Petty. Now that feels like 1979. There's an ad for uh, 
for free gifts at Citibank, like open an account and you can get this free gift. And it's, there's like a ton of them, including a grandfather clock and like all kinds of stuff. And then at the bottom, there's like the chart of like, if you open an account for this much, you can pick these things. And like, I've heard this reference before of like, you know, open an account and get a toaster or whatever. Well, it was like a sitcom trope for a while. Yeah. And it's also like, like I've heard it as a gay joke. of Like, oh, I didn't get my toaster when I came out. Well, that, that's specifically from Ellen. Oh, is it? Yeah. I think she. I don't think she made that up. I think she may, were, maybe not, but like on the Ellen coming out episode, gotcha. they they do the toaster joke. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, this is a real thing. The ad is amazing. Um, you can get a lot of shit for opening a bank account. I once got an iPod Shuffle for opening a bank account. That tells nice. you the, the exact wow. moment in time that I <laughs> I opened it. Very nice. Well done. <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything more than like a tote bag, but shows what I know. In movies, there's an article about Disney's Sleeping Beauty getting a re-release. Um, and then in the ads, uh, there's Monty Python's Life of Brian, Breaking Away, Alien, Rocky II, Apocalypse Now, Moonraker, and The Muppet Movie. Several of those have been open for weeks, if not months. Uh, so that was a thing that used to happen. And in theater, Evita and The Most Happy Fella are in previews, and Gilda Radner is playing The Winter Garden. All highly relevant to our interests. <laughs> On the Cashbox Pop Charts, uh, My Sharona is the number one song. and okay, just that is something that I definitely feel like is the 80s and not 1979. That was shocking to me. Yeah, that doesn't feel right. And well, and so for contrast, the number seven song stood out to me because it was The Devil Went Down to Georgia. <laughs> so, like, yes, the, this is a weird transitional moment. And the number one album is In Through the Outdoor by Led Zeppelin, which feels like the 60s to me so i don't just unstuck in time i don't know what's happening anymore yeah it's super weird on our particular monday night on television uh following the muppet show on cbs uh in new york at least was the white shadow which we have talked about before but it has apparently moved to monday nights uh mash wkrp in cincinnati and lou grant which is our old lineup on abc a new and short live show 240-Robert, which was about uh, the L.A. County EMS department and starred, among others, Mark Harmon and Joanna Cassidy. So, you know, that's fun. Uh, it's basically 911, but in 1979 and presumably worse, which is saying something. And then football. Um, on NBC, Hollywood Squares is on in syndication opposite The Muppet Show, which I think is new. It is the season six premiere of Little House on the Prairie and the introduction of Almanzo which was very exciting for some of us. And uh, then the 1978 Jane Fonda movie, Coming Home. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and welcome again to The Muppet Show. And it's going to be a terrific show tonight because our guest star is one of the great talents of the music world, Mr. John Denver. John Denver, singer, songwriter, actor, environmentalist. Pilot? Eh. Oh. Aww. Too soon. <laughs> Too soon. Henry John Duschendorf Jr. was born on New Year's Eve of 1943 in Roswell, New Mexico, to an Air Force family. The shy child of a stern military father whose job required the family to move frequently, John did not have an ideal childhood. John's grandmother gave him his first guitar when he turned 11, and by his junior year of high school, he was good enough at playing it to run away to California to try to start his career. His dad retrieved him and made him finish high school, but... John played club gigs around town while in college before dropping out of Texas Tech at age 20 and moving to L.A. for real. He got his professional start with the Chad Mitchell Trio. He replaced Chad Mitchell. And with that group, he recorded three albums and wrote several songs. In 1967, he married Annie Martell, who is the subject of his hit song, Annie Song. Together, they moved to Minnesota. 
1969, he went solo, and his producer brought his unreleased song, Leaving on Jet Plane, to Peter, Paul, and Mary. They recorded it. It became their only number one hit on both Billboard and Cashbox, and John was off and running. He released three albums by 1970, but his fourth album in 1971, called Poems, Prayers, and Promises, really provided him with his breakthrough as a performer, thanks to the number two hit, Take Me Home Country Roads. That was followed by a succession of hits, including Rocky Mountain High, Sunshine on My Shoulders, Thank God I'm a Country Boy, and many, many more. After the success of Rocky Mountain High, John moved to Aspen, Colorado, where he would live for the rest of his life. John and Annie adopted two children, a boy and a girl. During this period, John made a lot of appearances on television to help promote his music, and it turned out he was a good fit for the medium. He started to host his own specials, including Rocky Mountain Christmas, which set ratings records for ABC, and Evening with John Denver, which won an Emmy Award. In the mid-70s, he also reconciled with his father, who taught him how to fly planes, unlocking another passion that would ultimately end his life. In 1975, he was awarded Entertainer of the Year by the Country Music Association, which was a little controversial because a lot of the like real country country folks felt like his sort of light FM folk thing wasn't country enough. I think that feels familiar. I think that was the story with Helen Reddy too, right? Uh, and Olivia Newton-John would face very similar discrimination. And in fact, John and Olivia Newton-John would end up having sort of a close professional association. In the mid-70s, he also got involved in politics, and in a breath of fresh air after last year's slate of guests, this one was a Democrat and an environmentalist. In 1976, he founded the Windstar Foundation, which promoted sustainable living, and in 1977, he also co-founded the nonprofit Hunger Project, and he served on the President's Commission to End World Hunger. That's also the year he made the jump to the big screen, co-starring with George Burns and Oh God, which would spawn two sequels. As the 80s rolled around, his hit-making days were mostly behind him, but he made frequent appearances on TV and in concert while keeping up a busy slate of charitable activities, adding AIDS activism and advocacy for outer space exploration to his agenda. He testified to Congress in opposition to censorship as well. Unfortunately, John's career took a toll on his home life, and he and Annie split in 1982. He had another unsuccessful marriage in 1988 to actress Cassandra Delaney, they had a daughter together before ultimately separating in 1992, leading to a divorce. In 1994, he published Take Me Home, a revealing autobiography that included stories about substance abuse, marital infidelity, and domestic violence. By that point, he had been involved in a couple of high-profile drunk driving incidents, too, which was really at odds with his sort of squeaky clean public image. In 1996, he was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. That same year, the FAA medically disqualified him from operating aircraft due to his ongoing substance abuse problems. That didn't stop him, though, and in 1997, he did die in a plane crash while piloting a solo flight in a light home-built aircraft. Uh, however, that crash was not related to substance abuse, according to the toxicology reports after the fact. Upon his death, flags in Colorado were flown at half-staff. Later, the state would adopt Rocky Mountain High as one of his state songs, West Virginia would later do the same with Take Me Home Country Roads. After he died, his final album was released, All Aboard, a collection of train-themed children's songs, for which he posthumously received his only Grammy Award. Anyone have John Denver memories? This is not a memory, but it's it's a dark uh, parallel. There's a news story in today in The Muppet Show's 
paper that I skipped because I was going on for so long. But Thurman Munson, a Major League Baseball player, has been at this moment ruled responsible in the crash of his Cessna, which happened slightly earlier, um, which also raised questions about how pilots are licensed. And I totally forgot that that was how John Denver died until you made that joke. Um, And that's weird. That's just weird that that was like a front page story on the day his Muppet Show episode aired. My primary association with John Denver is all of his Muppet output, but my grandma Jeannie's favorite song in the world was Take Me Home Country Roads. So I wanted to shout that out at least. John Denver was a surprisingly present figure in my childhood. And I say surprisingly because this is not really the kind of music like that we played in my home, but I think it is the kind of music that got played on the light FM that my mom listened to in the car a lot. And I also remember watching specifically Oh God, You Devil, which is the third of the Oh God movies, and really liking it as a kid, probably because it felt like just a little dangerous in the way, like, you know, to someone who only watched G-rated movies, um, when I'm sure it is not at all dangerous, uh, but it's about the devil. And and yes, The Muppet Show, like this particular episode, uh, every beat of it was so familiar to me, which is odd for one that I definitely did not have on VHS. Like, I think either I saw it a lot in reruns or just really imprinted on me. And, like, just a lot of his songs are are songs that I just know in my bones uh, much better than the average, like, late 70s pop or folk song that I just happen to know because part of the culture. So, uh, and I also have very, very specific memories of when he died. I was in college and we had had a running joke among my friends about John Denver. And, and so the, and when the news came that he died and died in such like a surprising and kind of scary way, uh, it, it hit us like a little harder than a random celebrity death might otherwise, just because it was a name we batted around, you know, as part of a, a running joke. So uh, yeah, John Denver looms large in, in the David Levy mythology. Well, unfortunately I brought a clip uh, because I, cannot hear his name without thinking of this and now the sound of john denver being strangled you came on my pillow (laughs) thank you i'm sorry um (laughs) that's monty python uh, I'm not sure which which one of them is doing the John Denver impression, but it's quite good. <laughs> and I didn't realize for years that that was a real melody. Like I just thought they fully made it up. And then I I heard, um, I heard that song. What's that song called? Annie's song. That is that is Annie's song. Okay, I like I heard that song randomly, like fairly recently, like in the last few years. I was like, wait, that's the. That's the but you came oh. on my song. <laughs> Wow. But yeah, this is on like some Monty Python album that I had, and it's just like clearly they just did it to fill space. And but like it's just it it's also was very good for filling space on a mixtape. Remember when you had to do that? Or you didn't have to do that, <laughs> but when you could choose to do that, to figure, I've got 15 seconds left. Well, I'll put this Monty Python thing on it. So <laughs> what a legacy. <laughs> anyway, um, there you go. But yeah, also the the Christmas Muppet Christmas album uh, as a as a non Christmas celebrant, uh, that album was still uh, quite present and uh, is still the only version of most of the songs that I own in my iTunes. So yeah, yeah. And the songs from this episode and some of John Denver's other songs loom large in my childhood just from hearing my dad sing them around the house. But not much to add. Christy, what were your overall impressions of this episode? I thought the 
this was a solid start to the season. It's very gentle. Uh, it's got some really solid laughs in it. Uh, it's got uh, a number that I genuinely love. Yeah, I, I'm I'm excited. To, I, I don't think it's like, you know, the biggest, flashiest thing they've ever done. But uh, as far as just like, you know, delivering on basic tenets of Muppet Show, it, I think it uh, delivers the goods. David? I think I like it better than Christy does. Uh, I know. I think this is a great episode. I think it... It really captures a lot of of not only what I love about the Muppets and the Muppet Show, but also who the Muppets are post Muppet movie. In many ways, this is a reintroduction to the Muppet Show to the public who had now seen the Muppet movie and now has a different relationship to these characters. Piggy ended season three as a wannabe chorus girl, starts season four as a star. I, I feel like the whole kermit camping flashlight thing that we'll talk about later is like core muppet mythology as far as i am concerned i just i love this episode i think it's great michael needs more rolf <laughs> yeah but there was no there was no rolf there was no was there any fozzy like i feel like a bunch of characters were just missing completely yeah no there was no rolf there was no fozzy uh there was floyd but none of the rest of the mayhem i think mm -hmm. Yeah, there were also just a lot of background Muppets in a lot of the numbers, so they had enough going on. I think this is a really super solid episode. It didn't feel like an all-timer to me. It was really lovely, and I think it's a testament to how far the show has come in the seasons that we've seen. As, as you were saying, <laughs> this is a wonderful episode, and also it's totally fine for a season three or season four episode. A totally fine season four episode is still leaps ahead of a season one episode. There's so much of this that I was happy to see, and so many of these numbers have a lot of meaning for me, so I don't want to make it sound like this is a nothing episode, because uh, it's definitely not. It's got some great moments. Yeah, I, I agree with, with all of you. I think, uh, like, on my how much do I love at scale, I'm probably closer to Michal and Christy, but I, I also do love all of, you know, all the movie things that are coming in, and, and uh, I was shocked at how well I remembered it because, you know, it's, as we said, we're done with the DVD box sets, but I, I am positive that I have seen this like as an adult at some point, but I didn't think I had, right? I was like, I, I, I pressed play thinking this is going to feel new and it, it didn't at all in a good way. I did, uh, I finally started reading of Muppets and Men, which we've referenced a few times on the podcast. And I did find uh, an interesting tidbit that no one thought that the show would last more than three seasons. Like, in their wildest dreams, they thought they might get three seasons. Uh, and so here they are in season four, having just done the Muppet movie, and I think that there's a real sense of, like, we can do anything. <laughs> um, they clearly got more money. But it's interesting because they also talk about how much work is involved and how exhausting it is, so you might think that they would take this opportunity to scale back and coast, and that is definitely not what is happening in this episode. So uh, that's kind of great. But uh, Jane Henson says, I don't think we'd imagine, I don't think anyone imagined we'd still be here five years later. Well. <laughs> Surprise. John Denver, 15 seconds to curtain, John. In the cold open, after Scooter pops his head into the dressing room, we learn that Statler and Waldorf, or in this case, at least Waldorf, can just wander around backstage into the guest star dressing room whenever the heck they feel like it. All right, Scooter, thanks. Listen, Denver, you're a good kid. Let me help you get away so you don't have to do this crummy show. Come on. 
Wait a minute. I I, I want to work with the Muppets. You do? Well, yeah. I, I think this is a terrific show, Waldorf. You're beyond help. <laughs> <laughs> and then a moment later, during the theme song, Waldorf reports back to Statler that he had no luck. Well, he wouldn't listen. They must have brainwashed him. Aw. Um, Gonzo blows his trumpet and his head explodes. Oh, no. <laughs> Tragedy. But then uh, his head just appears again from elsewhere inside the Muppet Show. Oh, so that's a relief. Gonzo's head is intact, even if it's not attached to his body anymore. He can deal with it. It's worth mentioning that the theme song is shorter this season, and I do not care for it. Significantly yeah. shorter. I wonder if it's going to change, like if it's a you know episode length, like episode content thing. Nope. No, is this it- is the season four theme that we're stuck with. What is it that changed? All they do is two lines and then out. <laughs> yeah. It's a big cut. I couldn't tell exactly what. what was and the changed. first two lines are, are refilmed and re, like it's, it's different footage and I think different sound too. So now instead of having people like dancing on in lines, you just see the arches and they sing the first two lines and then that's why. And then they go right to why don't we get things started? Didn't even register with me, Hmm. but you're right. Anyway, let's go backstage. Yeah. Muppet Joe backstage. (laughs) So we just want to give you a cute little moment of backstage business from the top of the episode before we get into the rest of the plot. Kermit, Kermit, I haven't quite finished building the set yet. Well, how much time do you need? Thursday? I, I like that Bo is starting to come into his own. Yeah. It's sweet. It, yeah. So anyway, backstage this week, Kermit gathers the whole gang for a very important announcement. Hey, listen, everybody. John Denver has invited us all to join him on a weekend camping trip. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, Well, actually, no. You see, John and I decided it would be fun to take you all and show you the land of my birth. You mean... Yes, it'll be a weekend in the swamp. (laughs) I just remembered I got a basketball game on Saturday. Yeah, and the band's got three extra gigs this weekend. Yeah, and uh, I signed up for a seminar on mildew. This only raises more questions about the location of the Muppet Theater, if they don't have to drive, or if they don't have to fly to the swamp. I mean... If they were going to travel to the... Ma- I guess they're they're within reach of everything. Sure, sure. Just saying. If they were in New York, mountains would be very easy if, you know... Right. I don't know where it is to get to the swamp. It doesn't matter. Right. I don't know which swamp. It's just the swamp. Yeah. Also, Floyd refers to Kermit as your amphibiousness, which is just lovely. So the rest of this episode ends up being about who is and is not going on this camping trip... Especially, it's about Piggy uh, announcing that she won't go, or that she will go, or that everybody else has to go. And then once she decides that she is going, she throws herself into this idea without having any clue what camping entails at all. Oh, Mr. Kermit, sir, Hmm? when we get to the swamp, will you give me a swimming lesson? Oh, sure, Annie Sue. It it might be kind of fun to teach a cute little pig to uh, frog kick. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Uh, Weighs next to nothing. See? Ah! Oh, moi. I, I don't know if it was intentional, but the way that Kermit's 
head moves while he's talking to Annie Sue definitely looks like he keeps looking at her tits. <laughs> Amazing. I didn't catch that, but I will go back and look. I thought he was looking down bashfully, but you know what? You're not wrong. <sighs> yeah, so that's a piggy trying on Floyd's backpack after learning that campers have to carry everything that they need and pivoting around, hitting Annie Sue, who hurtles into the camera with this fantastic yelp. It's, I mean, it's violent, but it's wonderful. I'm not sure I buy that Floyd is an avid camper either, and he just like has his perfectly packed gear ready to go. I think he is probably an avid hitchhiker and has a backpack mm. for that reason. Fair, fair. Yep. Yeah, you're not wrong. But also, it's they're, they all just suddenly pack their backpacks while they're putting right. on the Muppet well, just, show. We never but, see Floyd with the backpack. It was, it was a, the choice to reference it as Floyd's I thought was interesting and not literally anybody else's. Yeah. <laughs> well, then Piggy turns out to have a camping backpack also. Uh, so... Piggy is further appalled when she visits John Denver's dressing room. We are going to the swamp. Yes, yes the swamp. Yes. Yes. Well, do, do you have everything? You, do you have your snake bite kit? What? Your your snake bite kit. There are snakes in the swamp. They may bite you. What? Uh, snakes? Well, yes, Piggy. Snakes. And and also one. Th- you you need a short, sharp stick about that long. Oh, a walking stick. Yes. Yes. No. I'm no. No. Sure. No. No. This is for the alligators. Alligators. Why, yes, darling. The alligators, when they open their mouths to eat you, you, you jam the stick, and, and they can't close their jaws. Under you. Good. Piggy is so horrified that she just starts whimpering while John Denver just loses it laughing. And I think that he assumed that they weren't going to use this take, but Piggy just continues hamming it up and whimpering more and cuddling into him while he has to comfort her. He literally wipes a tear from his eye and it's the greatest freaking thing. Uh. It's also never entirely clear if he's joking, like in, in character, like he's sort of fucking with her, but he never really is like, no, I was just kidding. He's like, no, no, there are scorpions. Like it's, it's unclear. This sounds like an unpleasant trip. Everybody seems to be taking some pleasure at Piggy's, expense well have you ever been to a real swamp like like a Fuck louisiana no. swamp not a new no england i've swamp. been to like new england swamps which are bad enough i definitely right. want to go like, to there it is like going into like the dagobah system like yeah why it, why are we camping and right the, like the air is thick with like both moisture and bugs and like it's just i would believe that you would need to be on the lookout for snakes and alligators it's it's like a cool thing to to visit for an hour to see what it's like wouldn't want to sleep there. Yeah, no, it does just, not he, sound cool. He gets so much pleasure out of out of this that it sort of feels like he's gonna tell her he was joking. But but no, no, <laughs> he's completely serious. There are alligators. Yeah, I I'm with Piggy on this one. Uh, same, hard same. <laughs> I like sleeping in beds and using bathrooms where there are bathrooms and eating where there are flat surfaces. And I know people who pay expensive city rents and love to get out of the city and be where they have to bring every single thing they might need for a weekend. And I do not understand. I don't even want to go to Fire Island because of that. (laughs) (laughs) Because you like using your own bathroom? Well, because like people like load up with like everything they need for the weekend because there's not like stores and shit. And like, to me, part of the nice thing about going away is not having to think ahead so much. Do you bring an empty suitcase and say, I'll buy clothes when I get there? Not intentionally, but sometimes. 
<laughs> Ask my friends about the great pants debacle of San Francisco circa, I don't know, 2009. Wow. It's a good thing the Gap is headquartered there. There's your album title. <laughs> yeah, I, I have camped. It's been a very long time. I will I will not do it again. Give me give me a cabin and a bed and a, I'm I'm fine. But yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. The first time that I went with my spouse to the Philadelphia Folk Festival, which is a music festival, there are like food vendors. There are places you can have electricity and use portable bathrooms. It's not totally out in nature, but still, that first night going to bed in a tent and just realizing that I couldn't plug my phone into anything. I was just so viscerally upset that I burst into tears. It was a problem. The following yet, year, we you said the better. first time, implying that you've been back. I have been back. You know, they have hotels in Philadelphia, I've heard. <laughs> some, some people go to Philly Folk Fest and stay in a hotel and then go hang out with the campers at night and then go sleep in a bed afterwards. I mean, you're you're my people. I uh, when I was a Girl Scout, uh, our our version of camping was sleeping in the museum overnight. So yes. that I would do. That sounds amazing. It was, especially if things come alive and stuff. When you went to the Philly Folk Fest, he said, transitioning. Did you have an outfit as fabulous as Piggy's? <laughs> uh, close, but I did not have a gold lame backpack. So I said that this episode is about Piggy deciding whether or not she's going camping, but really it is about how fabulous she looks. Like I said, this is our reintroduction to Miss Piggy, the star. Yeah. And she has a designer line camping outfit and a gold lame backpack. And she turns around to show off her little gold lame backpack to John Denver and does this little squishy thing with her whole body where the backpack just kind of whoops around at him. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And she's rocking this hat with one ear sticking out. She just looks so smart. The glow up is so real. I mean, the the hair looks amazing. Yes. Yeah. She got like softer curls. The eye makeup. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. She's an icon. Yes. We stand a legend. Piggy storms out of John Denver's dressing room down to Kermit's desk. And she is not the happiest of campers. Genus, but, you know, I, I was born in the swamp. My, my roots are there, and I, I just wanted you and my other friends to see it. But uh, we don't have to go back to the swamp. We can, uh, we can go to back where to, where to where you were born. The sty. You know, where your roots are. Where pigs eat swill and wallow in the mud. Remember that? Huh? I like that Mean Kermit is back, especially in our post-Muppet movie era, which really cemented him as, you know, kind, like, father figure to all the Muppets, Kermit. And even this episode where he's, you know, he's like, I want to take all my friends to where I grew up. But then he really is a total dick, which is nice. It's Yeah, he really is not just a dick to Piggy, but a dick to everybody. No warning. Guess what, everybody? Yeah. Mandatory work trip over the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get eaten by an alligator. Good luck. And yet, this feels like a different mean Kermit than the mean Kermit who just shits on Fozzie, right? Like, this feels like defensive Kermit who's, like, getting mean because he's hurt, not just being mean for the sake of being mean. Yeah, I guess that's true. But there's something that the tone, there's something about Jim's performance that I I, I like Kermit in this 
tone of voice and I miss yeah. it a little bit. Yeah, I like it in that it feels more like they are bickering in the context of a relationship. He seems like he's taking it back to her because there's some kind of simmering resentment because they've had something going on in between seasons that we don't get to hear about, but it's insinuated, insinuated. There is also like when when she is the only one in the earlier after the earlier clip that we heard where she is the only one who's on board with the camping trip when everybody else is, is not into it and it's specifically because she they're going overnight and she wants to spend the night with Kermit. So we do get a little bit of that that piggy sexual innuendo which which also feels a little bit new. Um right cuz he doesn't recoil from it at all. He does make kind of a face when he's like, he does make sort of like an, oh shit, what have I done face? But like, yeah, there's no dialogue about it. It's just like, I guess this is happening. Yeah, nothing sets the mood like a swamp with wall-to-wall mosquitoes. Exactly. <laughs> Comparatively, the sty sounds great. <laughs> yeah, there's probably at least a hose nearby. Some kind of enclosure. Yeah, some kind of privacy. One weird little bonus for you to segue us into the music segment here are Gonzo and John Denver in a relaxed moment backstage. I don't need help with my singing. I need help with my gardening. You've got a garden? Oh yeah, John. I've got the world's biggest mole garden. Mold garden? Yeah, mold. Far out. How, how did you get into that? Well, about a year ago, I went away on vacation and I forgot to clean out my refrigerator. Yeah? When I got back, the food was all green and fuzzy. And it was just too cute to throw out. (laughs) John Denver continuing to just be so delighted to be here is just the best thing about this episode. Also, I want to know where Gonzo goes on vacation. To the mildew convention. So we then see, see these mushrooms. They're very cute. They look like most Muppet food, except mushroom. Bigger. A little bigger. Um, but then that got me thinking in a world where the food talks and looks like, you know, it has eyes and looks like this. Is this like a Last of Us situation? Like, the, did the mushrooms take over? Some other food? Because, I mean, he specifically says that the he, let, he left his, he didn't clean his fridge and everything rotted and grew fungus. I mean, arguably, the, the food just... Um, Became the fungus that was already part of the fungus eco... No, this is not going to work. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, yeah. Also, like... <laughs> the you fungus among us. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't grow mushrooms in that case anyway, but... Our body becomes the grass, and the grass become the antelope, and then we eat the antelope. Yeah, no. It's circle, circle of, life. of it's, all, it's all good, but it, you know, it's just a, it's a thing I don't want to think about. But yes, it is... I, I think it's actually sort of... A relief when the mushrooms come out because when he's talking about his leftovers getting fuzzy in the refrigerator like the mental image of what you think his mold farm right, might look like right. is much whether worse. it's whether it's muppet food or not it is very unattractive right yeah and then mushrooms come on and talk about how they've been playing some form of sport in the refrigerator humongous really, fungus it is cute say. yeah <laughs> humongous fungi let's let them do it <laughs> All right, I'll replace it, but this is the last time. Oh, thanks. You're a real spore. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Nobody knows the truffles I've seen. <laughs> Take it, Christy. <laughs> 
So you know us by now. We can't let even a one-line song reference go by without talking about it. So that was Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, uh, which is a traditional black spiritual that first appeared in print in 1867, but it's much, much older than that. And we talked about this prior to recording a bit. We all sort of collectively know it from pop culture, but have only heard like one or two lines uh, sung. In my case, it's the snippet that Zazu sings in The Lion King. Yeah, and in my case, it's Baseballs and this. So let's rewind to the beginning and to a contentious situation. We just can't wait until the war begin. So, shockingly, the name of this song is Why Can't We Be Friends? <laughs> oh. Yeah. Um, it's a song by the band War. Uh, Even more shockingly. <laughs> Super on brand. It's from 1975. It hit number six on the Hot 100 and number five on Cashbox. Fun reversal there. And get ready, it was written by Papa D. Allen, Harold Ray Brown, B.B. Dickerson, Lonnie Jordan, Charles Miller, Lee Oscar, Howard E. Scott, and Jerry Goldstein. Took two people to write that song? There we go. Speaking of Benson. <laughs> Do you think that yeah. they couldn't agree on how to write the song and this was some other song than what they were trying to write, but this is what they landed on because they were fighting? Huh. You know? <laughs> I like that. I mean, the original version of the song very much sounds like a party track, like like maybe they just turned on the recorder and jammed. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Explain a lot. <laughs> well. So all of those guys, but uh, the last guy on the list, were members of the band. Uh, the last guy on the list, Jerry Goldstein, was their producer. David, isn't there a John Denver connection for Jerry Goldstein? Yeah, so Jerry Goldstein was also John Denver's producer at this time, and apparently they had a big falling out a few years later, uh, which ended with Goldstein calling Denver a Nazi, uh, which you can read about on John Denver's Wikipedia page. Yikes. Wow, wow, wow. So, fun fact about this song, it was played in space during the <laughs> Apollo-Soyuz test project in 1975, which The one place uh, was... that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. <laughs> Well, that's not true at all, and we know it. <laughs> uh, uh, so the Apollo-Soyuz test project was the first crewed international space mission. It was, speaking of notable c Cold War things, uh, it was a collaboration between the U.S. and the USSR. I just can't imagine anything more mid-70s than this song playing in space while two yeah, like, Jesus. capsules meet up. <laughs> I'm sure the Soviets were like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> so the staging of this number is extremely off-putting, let's just say it that I have way. so many questions. So it starts with a group of soldiers who appear to be in the Civil War, Union soldiers that were in blue. But then if you look closely, the folks that they're fighting with are not Confederates, but they appear to be uh, like... French Revolutionary? Yeah, like soldiers? Napoleonic French. Yeah. 
And then as the song goes on, there's different groups of soldiers who are each one their own ethnic stereotype from a different war uh, in history, some more specific than the others. It is bizarre. It's interesting to me that uh, at one point when we get to, I think, World War One, there's like a very New Yorker soldier who is performed by Steve Whitmire. And it's, I think, maybe the first time in the show that we've heard Steve Whitmire have like a real solo singing line that's very clearly him. Like, I know he's been with the show since the middle of season three, but this was the first time where I was like, oh, that's him. Maybe there was... Uh, maybe there was one last season, but... Yeah, I feel like we've said this before about other lines, but it might have been about his speaking lines. He's spoken, but I don't know. I don't think he's had a song. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There are a few recognizable characters who show up. Slim Wilson and Zeke from the Jug Huggers are both there. And then Crazy Harry shows up at the very end, which makes sense because during this whole thing, there's a whole lot of explosions. So we assume that Crazy Harry has been helping out with the tech, uh, but gets to be in the final kick line. Yeah, he's actually there earlier. He pops up in the trenches. Oh, does he? Blow up. Yeah. Okay. And I was just delighted to see that this confirmed for me that I have actually learned the names of the jug huggers individually. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's weird. I mean, it's all very weird. But to your point about the Union soldiers, like at least one of these jug huggers shows up and he's... he's He's wearing red. I don't know what uniform that is that he's wearing. Well, I think he's supposed to be like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Like, oh, I think it's okay. just like a red redneck shirt. Got it. Yeah, it looked like a uniform, like an old-timey uniform. But I was like, these guys are so Southern-coded. I feel like they should be Confederate soldiers, like, just in the... And it's all World War One. Like, all the all the imagery. There's, like, cannons and things. But, like, the set is is a World War One like, trench battle with like gas masks lying around like it's, that imagery is really specific and really like placed in time and and then the rest of it is so weird i was troubled dramaturgically by the fact that um several of the people peoples portrayed in this scene were like actively and for no reason invaded by other ones so I'm like that's why y'all can't be friends like it's not this isn't like this isn't just some I- random like there's there's a couple Native Americans in there, and I'm like, yeah, no, no, we we know what your problem is, and it's us, and uh, I don't know that this is a song for you. I don't disagree with you, but also you weren't troubled dramaturgically by all of these different soldiers from all these different eras. Well, because it's like it's each a, other, it's a broad anti-war <laughs> shtick that they're doing. Yes, it's it's very um, for what it's worth from a couple seasons ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with people instead of animals. But there was very little thought put into, like, why can't we be friends? Well, because your people try to murder all of my people for no reason. I mean, Or that's because a little... Crazy Harry keeps blowing everybody up and everybody that. blames their opponents. What if they just can't be friends because of Crazy Harry? Fair. But hey, they manage a, a kick line with no kicking, which is quite yeah. a feat. You only see their upper bodies and the way that they throw their heads back on the beat, and it looks like they are kicking in a kick line, even though they have no legs. So, no Muppet feet for everybody who was concerned, but still very clearly a kick line. It's very impressive. At one point, I'm pretty sure one of the explosions actually lights one of the Muppets on fire. Oh, God. Well, that's concerning. It is, and there's a lot of fire in this episode. I think there's two other scenes that have fire in it. Yeah, Yeah. there are, uh, for sure. You know, since I mentioned the uh, Native American character, uh, I-, I clipped this. There is no content warning on this episode, and I think someone at Disney maybe missed it. 
stuff. That's why we're here. Um, the backstage, uh, this happens. Okay, nice opening number. Oh, thank you very much, sir. See, he's he's the other kind of Indian. <laughs> oh, that that is, that is quick. I, I did it not is pick real up quick. On that. But I caught it immediately because I'm broken. So, yikes! And here I was thinking that only the French got really ridiculed. Well, on stage, <laughs> they right. had it coming. Yeah, and then this gets like a really sort of disturbing coda with Statler and Waldorf. Yeah, so it it ends with Statler and Waldorf gunning everyone down from their box. Uh, Inevitable, really. Yeah. Yeah, as soon as they've managed to cooperate and collaborate on this kick line, Statler and Waldorf are having none of it. Uh, and then this uh, this is our transition out of the number. Yeah, they got up. We must have missed them. We didn't miss them. We were shooting blanks. We were? Of course. <laughs> Well, some of them were blanks. Jeez. Also, are they German? From their little hats? I think so. Yeah, they so. appear to be like World War One Germans, which is uh, also raising some questions about what war they fought in in the past, which they've mentioned before. And for whom? Yes. This also made me realize how long it had been since I'd heard the phrase shooting blanks non-euphemistically. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to something more peaceful. Let's plant a garden. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. All it takes is a rake and a hoe and a piece of fertile ground. Inch by inch, row by row, someone bless these seeds I sow. Someone warm them from below till the rain comes tumbling down. So yeah, that's something completely different. <laughs> um, it's a song called Garden Song, uh, which was written by David Mallett in 1975. It's been recorded by a lot of people in the folk world. Paul from Peter, Paul, and Mary, Pete Seeger, Arlo Guthrie, Raffi, John Lithgow. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, no, you know. <laughs> I actually think I have that album. <laughs> Of course you do. Um, and, and John Denver. And John Denver's version was very new at this point in time. It was on his eponymous album released in January of 79. And David Mallett wrote this song in his early 20s while he was working in his father's garden in Maine. And it was only the third or fourth song he'd ever written in his life. And it led to him going on to a very successful indie folk singer-songwriter career. So good for him. But I just have to point out... <laughs> Uh, in this version, John Denver sings the following. Pulling weeds and picking stones, man is made of dreams and bones. Feel the need to grow my own. And the first yep. thought I had was, your own bones? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just got stuck on man is made of dreams and bones because I found it creepy and weird. <laughs> I mean, it is, but I was like... I really love that line. Don't have bones? <laughs> that really gets to me. Thought he's talking about man is made of dreams and bones, and he feels the need to grow a garden. Grow a man about a garden. No, he's <laughs> is man not kid. also made of mostly water and muscle and skin? And I just, it's just so I don't know. I just like <laughs> skeleton gardening, <laughs> but dreaming. 
Well, when you sing the song, you can say that a man is made of meat and bones, and then it's a little closer. <laughs> I think the dreams are essential to the sentiment. And it's true, nothing else in the body really rhymes with stones, but I don't know. Oh, but at that point, you're growing your own meat, and that's a whole other thing. <laughs> man is made of dreams and gallstones. There you go. Chromosomes. There you go. Well, uh, that doesn't really rhyme. Not quite. It doesn't scan either, but who cares? (laughs) When has it stopped us? So I learned this song at summer camp or youth group or something like that. Uh, I don't, it was many years until I realized that it was like a real song that had been recorded by anyone and not just the kind of thing that, you know, gets passed along from generation to generation. I did not know until today that this song is from 1975. And I, I'm just astonished that like, are kids today learning songs that are that recent? Like I, this song was maybe 10 years old when I encountered it and thought it was an ageless, timeless folk song. And like, uh, what, what is a song from 2013 that kids might sing at summer camp and think has been passed down from the ages? Like, Despacito? <laughs> Somebody I used to know. <laughs> what is Despacito 2013? Did I get that right? <laughs> no. There probably are, you know, equivalent. And the closest I could come up with was Closer to Fine by the Indigo Girls, you, but that's already want... 30 years old. Yeah, I was going to say, do you want me to tell you how old yeah, Closer to Fine I is? want to feel old. Cause... But, but that's a song that I learned, like, in a similar situation, but, like, when I was in high school... So the song had been out for a few years at that point, but I learned it from, like, teenage girls singing it, you know? Right. I can't. I mean, there must be something, you know, acoustic and folksy and family-friendly. Then I also sang this song at camp, but I don't think I ever passed the first verse because Man is Made of Dreams and Bones was definitely not a thing I recognize. Let's talk about the flowers, because I find some of them very creepy. But one of our uh, melon friends from the Roger Miller episode is back, and it has no face but it does this thing where it turns and looks up adoringly at john denver e- even though it has no face which is just a very muppety thing and or very ominously audrey two vibe thing yeah i mean there are those those are there too and they're separate but the the little melon is so cute and it has a mouth but no eyes and it, somehow it conveys all this expression by just like the tilt of its head <laughs> the tilt of its melon i don't know <laughs> And then there's like these little cone-shaped things, which I actually found very disturbing. Um, those look very sinister to me. Oh, they're sweet. So if you have Stevens, that's the answer, right? That's who kids are sick. That's the answer. Camps. Yes, yes. Are kids? Okay. We don't know. So if you have pl- listeners, if you have kids, tell us what the hell they're singing at camp. <laughs> um, <laughs> it might still be this. Take honestly. me home, country roads. Well, yeah, sure, it's also like, this, but yeah. like I think. Yeah. I would like to think that newer songs have gotten added. They're probably singing Sweet Caroline. Oh, Fucking God, I hell. hope not. Uh, they're singing Hamilton. Let's, you know. Yeah, you're right. You're right. No, that's, I, that's I was at a Bob Mitzvah this weekend, and they played two different songs from Six as part of the Amazing. lineup. Yeah. Well done. Wow, wow, wow. We talked about Piggy's outfit. Uh, I just need to mention John's necklace, which is... Uh, large and strange and he's also wearing it in the opening where he's in a bathrobe so it really stood out to me there and it just is a very 1979 piece of jewelry very surfer boy vibe. yeah it's not even like that teal, large just, right like it's it's yeah. yeah yeah it just really stood out to me mostly in the dressing room scene and then i was like oh you've still got it in the opening which makes sense 
You know something? That was a sweet number. It sure was. You know something else? What? I hate sweet numbers. <laughs> In this week's UK spot, we get a bit shady. Pun intended. What's that, puns? <laughs> a tree would call you a pine in the neck. <laughs> With a voice like that, you won't be very popular around here. <laughs> if I couldn't sing any better than that, I'd leave. <laughs> so it's trees. And that was the truncated version of the song. <laughs> Before we branch out too far... This is a repeat song. We heard a tiny bit of it at the first time. It was a, a Wayne and Wanda bit in uh, season one in the Bruce Forsyth episode. And we, we did talk about it at that point. Um, it is a setting of a poem by Joyce Kilmer uh, with music by Oscar Rasbach from 1922. So shout out to the fairly recently public domain. I mean, the, the poem is definitely public domain. And I, I, I know... Uh, Michal has lots of uh, deep feelings about Joyce Kilmer. (laughs) (laughs) I have um, many fond feelings about Alfred Joyce Kilmer and many fond memories about his assorted namesakes. As in the Bruce Forsyth episode, I would be remiss if I did not shout out Mr. Alfred Joyce Kilmer, author of The Poem Trees, and several of his namesakes, including... The Alfred Joyce Kilmer Memorial Bad Poetry Contest, uh, which is put on every year by my college literary debating society, the Philolexian Society, a contest which I have only won once with the best worst poem of the evening and have been runner up with the second best worst poem of the evening on several occasions. (laughs) I am also honor bound to shout out the Joyce Kilmer rest stop and service area at exit eight on the New Jersey Turnpike. So I just have two very brief things to add. Uh, one, I think it's clear that this performance has its roots in yeah. Never Before, Never Again in the Muppet movie. I think this is their attempt to sort of take that same gag and insert it here. The gag being that Piggy is a bad singer. Also, the song talks about boobs a lot, considering this about trees. I don't think I'd paid such close attention <laughs> to the lyrics before. It's a, Yeah. Upon whose bosom snow is lain, who intimately lives with rain. That's not about boobs, but it sure is intimate. There's also a reference to the tree's breasts earlier. Oh, right. Whose hungry mouth is pressed upon the earth's sweet flowing breast. There, I don't oh, have sorry, the lyrics the up. Breath. I just know this poem very well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> we, we recite it every year at the end of the bad poetry contest. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on boob-wise with trees. I love the way Piggy sings it. I mean, I know that we're supposed to be getting that Piggy is a bad singer. But I love her attack on every the top of every line. She just does this giant scoop, and it's it's beautiful to behold. <laughs> She's very enthused and very confident as a singer. Also, her hair with this look is extra fabulous. I just would like to mention. I love her dress in this. I love her hair in this. It's great. So we rise above this, so to speak, with our next number. <laughs> We love to go a-wander 
along the mountain tracks And as we go we love to sing Our knapsacks on our backs Valdry Valdra 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 <laughs> and oh. all the screams get better with every pig that falls down this mountain. It's so good. So okay, then, so yeah. we we should describe what's happening. So uh we start with three pigs who are climbing presumably an alp. <laughs> and <laughs> just one uh, alp. <laughs> uh, Really, yeah, never, and never use that in the singular outside of the context of the three. Puzzle. Yes, <laughs> three pigs climbing an alp become two pigs climbing an alp, which become one pig climbing an alp, uh, who is so jubilant that he has made it through the chorus that he celebrates a little too hard and then gets knocked down by an avalanche. So, <laughs> alps may or may not have been caused by. Uh, a mischievous goat. Yeah, I was going to say, was it an avalanche, or did that goat straight up murder them all? Oh, I thought it was really... their singing that caused the avalanche. Oh, I thought it was the goat. The goat looks very sinister at the end. And laughs like Bert. It's really cute. Alps one, pigs nothing. This is a song called uh, The Happy Wanderer. Uh, I, I, I'm not great with German. Uh, Wanderer or Mein Vater and Wandersmann. There it right. is. And the, the text is definitely in the public domain. It was written by uh, Florence Friedrich Sigismund? Sigismund? Uh, anyway, uh, he, yes. he died in 1877. Uh, but the tune actually is n- not in the public domain. Uh, it was written after World War II. That was shocking to me. If, if you'd asked me prior to doing research on this, what... What is uh, one of the songs that is definitively not in the public domain? I would not have guessed this one. Um, and it entered the popular consciousness because of a children's choir. The music was composed by Friedrich Wilhelm Moller, and uh, his sister Edith arranged it for her children's choir. And a recording of them doing it at a competition got some airplay on the BBC in 1953, and it became a hit. And it stayed on the UK singles chart, which was only a top 12 chart at the time, for 26 non-consecutive weeks in 1954. Phew, post-war Britain, man. Um, and it peaked at number two. <laughs> and the, the choir was partially made up of war orphans, so they had a good story. And so like, they continued to be uh, a thing for quite a while. And they appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show in both 1964 and 1966. But I learned a couple of really random things about this one it was the unofficial anthem of the montreal expos <laughs> sure why i mean that i don't know but uh i mean why is sweet caroline the unofficial anthem of the red Sox? right like teams just get these stupid songs attached to them yeah you'll never walk alone is the <laughs> you know theme of the liverpool f- football football soccer. guys people <laughs> Sports. <laughs> we do sports. Yeah, but the Montreal Expos don't exist anymore. They are now the Washington Nationals, so presumably uh, they're not singing Alpine uh They've happily wandered. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, it was in 1955 selected 
as the uh, Trinidad Road March title. And what that is is the song that was most played by steel bands during that year's carnival season. <laughs> oh. Uh, Unexpected. Yeah, it was the only time a non-Calypso song had been given that award. Um, and uh, there's just something very, you know, like New York subway platform about an alpine <laughs> sing-along being played on the steel drums. What do I know this song from? Like, when it came on, I was like, oh, it's that song. But, like, I definitely didn't know the song's name. Definitely didn't know the song's words. And in my mind, I can picture someone like Madeline Kahn singing it, although I don't think Madeline Kahn ever sang it. Well, you might have heard it at a, a folk song share, because as <laughs> as with both I mean, the garden songs... I promise you I did not hear it at a folk song share. Well, I'm just... <laughs> I've just been observing that uh, the Garden Song and Nobody Knows the Troubles I've Seen and the Happy Wanderer are all featured in the folk singing book Rise Up Singing, and this pleases me. Oh, you know, it, listen, it is true that I have. You've been in rooms where Rise Up yes. Singing has been used, David. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> it does appear in Schindler's List. Uh, <laughs> well. well, Which I have never seen. And uh, it's... Uh, Anachronistic, apparently, because from what people seem to know about it, it was written after World War II. So it did appear on Barney, which I am too old for, <laughs> thankfully. Knowing it only from this episode, still that I mean, and having only the association of pigs falling down a mountain, you telling me that it features in Schindler's List. <laughs> I I'm not thrilled to learn this. <laughs> but I will tell you, as much as I dislike camping. I, I don't hike often, but when I do, I will whip out my harmonica or kazoo and sing this freaking song. Because as far as I'm concerned, that's what it's for. Pigs falling down a mountain and hiking and pretending that you were a pig falling down a mountain. You were complaining about camping earlier, but you bring a kazoo with you? <laughs> Why leave home without it? Feels like a crime against nature. <laughs> I carry a kazoo and a harmonica in my backpack with me every day, everywhere I go. What if I need a kazoo at the gym, Adam? I want to have at the gym. We're talking about the woods. Yeah, same. This, for me, is a perfect example of a thing that The Muppet Show does so well, which is a fucking doofy thing executed <laughs> flawlessly. Yep. And violently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometimes you throw penguins, sometimes you knock pigs down a mountain. Yeah. And they're so unbothered. Like, they're... They're scared of like, oh, I could fall and die too, but not a lick of concern for, oh, our friend just plummeted to his death. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, maybe they're not friends. Maybe they're just happen to be climbing at the same time. But I, there's, I would be more alarmed, but that's part of what makes it fun is they're like, oh, we'll keep climbing. We're almost yeah. there. <laughs> they're unmoved. <laughs> <sighs> well, uh, I'm I'm happy to report that our, our final song has no connections to Schindler's List. <laughs> Appreciate that. Have chicken pie, country ham, homemade butter on the bread. But the best darn thing about Grandma's house was a great big feather bed. It was nine feet high and six feet wide, soft as that. It was made from the feathers of four eleven geese with a whole boat cloth full of tick. It hold eight kids and four hand dogs and Wouldn't get much sleep, but we had a lot of fun on Grandma's. Grandma's feather bed. So this uh, 
is a song that was on an album of John Denver's called Back Home Again. And this album is uh, notable because it included several of his big hits, including Annie's song and Thank God I'm a Country Boy. And it was written by Jim Connor, who was a member for a period of time of the new Kingston trio. So most, so two thirds of the trio left and replaced, were, were replaced by two other guys, one of whom was Jim Connor, <laughs> who uh, was a banjo player. And uh, he's in the, the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. He was a friend of John Denver's. He's really happy to let you know he was a friend of John Denver's. He's at last posting on his Facebook page, uh, Jim Connor Banjo and the Fellowship of the Banjo. Uh, he was in the midst of recording the audiobook for his uh, book, Me and JD. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, but yeah, he's uh, in the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. He has a wild website. Uh, it's at jimconnorbanjo.com. Uh, it has a quote from Leonard Bernstein that says, he is a knockout. <laughs> sure. Um, and apparently, if you pay him nineteen ninety nine in real American dollars, you get access to what he says, quote, might be the most valuable banjo music site you'll ever see online. All right. This song is his crowning achievement, apparently, um, because it's the first thing mentioned in all of the various materials about him across the interwebs. I love this. This <laughs> <laughs> It is not my kind of song, but it did grow on me over repeat viewings. I mean, it's such a so adorable. It, it's it's a very literal Muppet staging. With although the bed is not nine feet high, I will note. I disagree because <laughs> there's at least six feet of Muppet performer underneath it. So uh, okay, well, in relation to John, it is not. It is not nine feet high. Uh, that did always mystify me, though. When I I grew up hearing a version of this song that Kermit sings, apparently in Rocky Mountain Holiday, which I actually have not seen but it was compiled into a different Muppet album. So I'm used to hearing Kermit sing this and Animal yelling in the background. But I did always wonder as a kid, like nine feet high, it seems big for a bed. I mean, it's, a, it's not to pick apart the lyrics of the best banjo or in all of creation, but uh, I, I, I think it's very, I think, should think it's very sweet. And I think the idea, you know, the idea is it's from, from a child's point of view, right? It seems like it's nine feet high, but then he says it's like, it's six feet wide. Which is like about the width of a king size bed in real life. So it's just a little weird. It's weird. Maybe it's just a loft bed. Maybe, Maybe. for some reason. Oh, you can play underneath it. Bed. That sounds Maybe. cool. Anyway, it's very cute. There's all these Muppet dogs in the bed. And you know how I love Muppet Dog. Including Baskerville, uh, who I was glad to see yeah. still exists. And John Denver wearing a little sleeping cap and having a pillow fight with Muppets and having just the time of his dang life. And it's then John Denver sweet. reappearing as John Denver's own grandma. Yes. <laughs> that part was strange. Uh, also, I'm allergic to down, so this entire thing is a nightmare. Oh, um, same. I cannot I get near that bed. ahead of time. And yeah, like, same. Please take everything out of the room. And there's, a, I think, a new Muppet baby. Like, not one of the Bobby Benson babies. There's, a, like, a new whatnot baby that I don't think we've seen before. I mean, there are just some very cute Too whatnot Muppets who are done up like kids i don't know if they're necessarily all meant to be babies but it's, well no it's but there's, there's one specifically who is who has like two little teeth coming in yeah they all shudder when they think about aunt lou and that makes me sad for aunt lou but have you met aunt lou <laughs> no and apparently <laughs> i don't justified. want to have you kissed her <laughs> not yet 
The night is still young. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business? One little bit of show business. The Swedish chef is in the great outdoors and hoping to cook some squirrel stew. But the squirrels fight back. That's it. That's the sketch. It, the best part of it is really when it opens and the Swedish chef has his back to us and his arms fully spread out. And he's oh just swaying from side to side. Oh, you're, Christy is shuddering, uh, but I love this. Well, because he's shaped like Cookie Monster, which, yeah. you know, like a, a person should not be. But also because it's, it's like on Cookie Monster, the arms belong to two different people. There's something about like the hands being completely disconnected from the body. I'm with I mean, Christy. When, it's it's too it's too yeah. wide. It's like it's very not, Rocky the Flying Squirrel, actually. Yeah, it right? doesn't like, look right. Yeah, it's it's I I never want to think this hard about the Swedish Chef's wingspan <laughs> in my life. <laughs> I was happy to see that all the forest animals, including the bear, are still together after the Leo Sayer episode. Yeah, and they're all looking out for each other. Exactly, it was very sweet. He chases the squirrels off screen, and then a bear chases him back on screen holding his meat cleaver. Woodland creatures are doing okay. I understand that campfires are a thing, but the the <laughs> fire on which he's cooking and the way it's elevated, especially in light of the um, the Muppets uh-huh. Go Hollywood bit with Fozzie being mistaken for Smokey, I, I just was like, this is how forest fires happen. This is, this is it. yeah. That, that flame is coming all the way up the, the sides of the cooking pot. I mean, I guess it's Frank Oz's hands that are more in danger than the puppets, but, I mean, I hope Frank Oz has insured his hands for a lot of money. I got nothing, and David's bored. No, I'm looking up naked pictures of the Swedish chef to try to figure out what he uh, looks like underneath <laughs> that wingspan. Jesus. What? <laughs> uh- <laughs> Like the puppet. I started to do it up, and then I remembered this is my work computer, and that's why I had to pick up my phone. <laughs> okay, that answers my second question. In case the listeners have not figured it out, this is the first episode we've recorded where we can see each other's faces, and we can't figure out whether this is useful or not. I like it. <laughs> You know, it looks like it's going to be just you and me on that camping trip because everybody else backed out. Oh, is that, I'm sorry to hear that. But listen, Kermit, never mind. We'll have a great time. I'll, I'll, I'll teach you how to catch frogs. What? Well, yeah, what you do is, is you wait until dark, you see, and then you take a flashlight and you shine it out in the water. John, I knew and- all about those flashlights. How do you think my eyes got this way? So that's the last note of this episode, and that has haunted me for 40 years. Uh, I think about that all the time. <laughs> anyway, anyone else have uh, lasting thoughts from this episode? According to Muppet Wiki, this episode is not available on Disney Plus in Europe. And I have to wonder if it's because of why can't we be friends? Oh. But they don't say why. I mean, we don't know why any of that is. We have guesses for some of it. but Fascinating. Also, you know, among the dogs on John's grandmother's feather bed is Muppy, and I think this might be one of Muppy's final appearances because uh, in a few weeks we are going to meet Muppy's successor, Fufu. Mm. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Maybe they coexist for a while. I'm not sure. Before oh, Muppy goes to the... <laughs> the nice farm upstate. Yeah, the, <laughs> the big Muppet workshop in the sky. 
We have a couple plugs this week, uh, which is unusual. Uh, David, what's uh, what act are you plugging this week? Well, I, I can't remember if we talked about this at the end of the season, but in between season three and season four, uh, we did collectively make a guest appearance on the Tough Pigs podcast, the Great Muppet Fandom Panel, uh, where, in fact, we did talk a little bit about John Denver, among other things, because the topic of the panel discussion was... Who is the Muppets' best friend? And so if that is something you would like to hear us talk about, you can seek that out at toughpigs.com or look for Muppet Fandom Podcasts by toughpigs.com in your podcast feed. Yeah, just search Tough Pigs in your podcast feed. I think that'll, your podcast app. I think that'll do it. Uh, we also decided uh, not to do an episode on Muppets Mayhem because it doesn't really fit our format. But if you want to hear me talk about it, uh, I was a guest on Extra Hot Great on May 12th. Um, that's actually a bonus episode for their Patreon supporters, but I know that we have some listener overlap. Uh, so hopefully you've already listened to it uh, or that is available to you. And it's a good thing to support independent podcasts we don't have a patreon of our own but you can go support extra great and hear that episode or our friends at tough pigs or commitment or lots of other friends or go to muppeturgy.com slash store and buy our merch which will give us a little bit of money um so yeah very little so um anyway uh that was really fun and uh if you're an ehg patreon patreon you can uh, you can hear me ramble some more because you don't do that enough here well, guys, it's just the three of us for a weekend in the swamp. Oh, no! Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks for Crystal Gale. You can find us on whatever social media still exists at this point at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. You can buy our merch at Muppeturgy.com store. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Aliens very relevant to my interests. So. Well, aliens got all sorts of puppets in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, fair enough. I'm still not going to watch it. So just watch Spaceballs again and tell you. It is very good. Yeah, I mean, Aliens is better, but but you definitely shouldn't watch that. If if your bar is an Alien, don't watch Aliens. <laughs> oh, I disagree that Aliens is better than Alien. We're not going to talk about that now, but uh, <laughs> we're not an Aliens podcast. <laughs>